Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 23. In this episode, I talk with Mabel Rice, professor at the University of Kansas. Mabel shares key findings from her numerous longitudinal studies of children with specific language impairment, with discussion about misconceptions around language impairment, early identification of language impairment, and the genetics of language impairment. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guest. Speaking of these resources, I finally asked for some help, and I now have a student assistant who is working with me to get the resources ready for each episode. My New Year's resolution, well, one of them, is to ask for help when I need it. Why is that so hard to do? <laughs> anyway, don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Happy New Year. Well, welcome Mabel Rice to the See, Hear, Speak podcast. So excited to have you here today. Uh, I will start by having you introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Mabel Rice. I'm a professor at the University of Kansas, where I have uh, been on the faculty for a while now. And I also direct a child language doctoral program, which is a cross-disciplinary doctoral program. I uh, direct several funded projects, one of which is a, a training grant for doctoral students, a cross-disciplinary training grant. And I um, direct an advanced study center on topics completely unrelated to what I'm going to be talking about here. So that's a little bit. That's You're a little not busy bit. at all, obviously. No. <laughs> and no. I, I had the honor of being one of your trainees, even though Hugh Katz was my primary mentor. I was right. on your traineeship, and it was a real uh, honor. And we still keep in touch because of that, too. We do, and it's a very good group of people that have been uh, part of our our experiences so and of course everybody is always a member of the family that's right it is an honor to be part of that elite group for sure and uh, mm -hmm. we just have to say the rock chalk for sure so it's, all right excited mm -hmm. to have you on well your whole career has been devoted to studying and helping children with specific language impairment or sli and we've had a few episodes on the podcast to celebrate dld awareness day i think it'd be great for the listeners to understand the difference between sli and developmental language disorder sure well, uh, let, let me walk us, walk us into it. So the definition of specific language impairment that I adhere to is the one that uh, the National Institute of Deafness and Communicative Disorders has posted on their website. And they have a lovely new um, printed version of the information that's there that is available if you request that that form of it. Anyway, specific language impairment is a communication disorder that interferes with the development of language skills in children who have no hearing loss or intellectual disabilities. And this condition can affect a child's speaking, listening, reading, and writing. So notice that it's defined in ways that have inclusionary as well as exclusionary criteria. Um, and we can walk our way through how the history of this uh, came to be uh, later on. But it's been around for a long time. So it emerged in the 1960s with work by Paula Minyuk at MIT. 
and has been studied certainly throughout these intervening years. Then we have another, another form of language impairment that I want to uh, also uh, cue up here, and it's called nonspecific language impairment because uh, this includes children whose nonverbal IQ might be lower than what we would use in a classic definition of SLI because we never wanted to confuse entirely uh, the children who had limited cognitive abilities uh, in addition to language. This was in part because we were trying to figure out why do these kids have language impairments when they seem to have everything they need in order to get it going. So this nonspecific language impairment then includes children with borderline or below nonverbal um, cognitive abilities. And then we have uh, the more recent term is developmental language disorder. Uh, and that, that brings in a few other kids as well. So this excludes the exclusionary criteria or more narrowly defined as um, a known biomedical etiology. But uh, it makes a point of including risk factors, neurobiological or environmental risk factors. Um, I have to say that SLI has never been defined by environmental risk in the classic way of defining that as low SES. There is another kind of environmental risk like exposure to toxins, for example, but in this literature, environmental risk has been interpreted to mean families who are poor, who have few resources, and mothers who have limited education. Those children have never been excluded from the diagnosis of SLI, and in fact, we studied that issue very carefully in order to understand it better. So now we have back to developmental language disorders. So it's more inclusive, and it does include um, ADHD, which gets handled um, on more of an ad hoc basis across different people doing research on um, SLI. And it does not require a mismatch between verbal and nonverbal ability, neither does SLI. Those are, those are debates that are playing out in other places in the world more than they are here in the States now, so it hasn't been there. But I have to say that one of the issues with this new, new terminology is it's actually old terminology. And in the US, it has a long history and still current publications in which it means something different. It means it would include children who have autism and fragile X and epilepsy and cerebral palsy as being children who have developmental language disorders that are running with other conditions in the same uh, youngster at the same time. That is really so important to know, especially when you're mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, listeners and, and new doc students and clinicians and going mm -hmm. into the literature and pulling these two, uh, you know, groups out and trying to figure out how they fit to their mm -hmm. clinical practice. It's so critical that they look at the inclusionary criteria. And sometimes, mm -hmm. that's un, you know, maybe not as clear in, in the articles, but we hope it is. And I like how in the forthcoming perspectives paper, you frame the difference between SLI and DLD using an analogy of precision med medicine, which is such a, a big topic now and, and so important. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners more about that analogy and, and how you um, see the label of specific language fitting into the current advocacy for children with developmental language disorder with this precision medicine in mind. 
The example that I gave from precision medicine is breast cancer, which is certainly uh, a form of medical treatment and a, a medical condition that we're quite familiar with. And I think it's informative uh, for us to think because breast cancer goes often goes undetected as does certainly SLI in many cases. So however, we're defining DLD and even NLI. Um, so the medical community has um, put in place an extensive screening program for identifying breast cancer. The mammograms are out there. Uh, women are encouraged to receive mammograms, even though the rate of breast cancer in women overall across all ages is about 10%. And that's interesting because we estimate the rate of these children that we're talking about here is between 7 and 10%. So a massive mammogram screening uh, protocols and encouragement are in place. It meets all the insurance requirements and everything. And that can pick up uh, breast cancer that can't be detected in any other way because diagnosis is at the heart of medical practice. Diagnosis is also at the heart of good speech pathology practice, I believe, and at the heart of good teaching practices at large. We have to understand what we're dealing with. And once, once the mammogram uh, comes back with a positive uh, response on the screen, that's only the beginning of what is needed for planning a program of treatment or intervention in, in our case. And the treatment uh, protocols then for precision medicine treatment of breast cancer want to know what kind of a growth is this? How large is this growth? What is the prognosis for a successful treatment depending upon which elements of treatment? And what treatment do we begin with? And then what comes next? And how often do we follow up? And do we really need the third element of a treatment? All of those, all of those are regarded as essential at the beginning, at the outset, information for working with. And I think that this can be a comparison point for us that, uh, first of all, most of these youngsters that we're talking about are unidentified for different reasons. And once, if we had screening programs for they were younger, when, when they're younger, around early years in school or even late preschool, it would be fantastic. And we would want to know what do we need to know about their speech and language. We certainly want to know, do they have language problems even though they don't have speech problems? And we know from very good research findings that most of these kids do not have speech problems. So you can't pick them up on that obvious basis. You have to do more probing. You have to find out how good is their vocabulary and how good are they at formulating sentences and to what extent do they really understand all of the grammatical elements and how long does it take them to figure this out? Are they running much, much older than the children typically do? And then we have to figure out which ways of intervening do we have? 
can we work with the families to change some elements that's within their daily activities at home? Do we need particular kind of focused practice sessions? Do we need to work with the teachers on how to adjust their reading curriculum? All of those things require precision in the same way that identification and treatment of breast cancer is needed. And I think that we have, we have defaulted a little bit in uh, thinking that maybe we don't have to bother with that initial information gathering part. But in fact, um, just like our treatment for breast cancer, we really would want to have that information in hand. Well, we de I definitely um, resonate with you on this early identification. And uh, Suzanne Adloff and I uh, recently published a paper arguing for screening of language impairment, screening for language impairment within the current school system because there's, as you know, there's all these laws about screening for dyslexia. And I think if we could capitalize on the, you know, the um, culture of screening to add in screening for language impairment, that would be ideal for all the reasons you mentioned. And we really drew on your seminal work in that paper to say that you can identify uh, SLI early. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your findings related to the grammatical deficits of SLI, the optional infinitive hypothesis, and what are the implications for SLI and also early identification, because we're talking about early identification here. Yeah, well, first of all, let me say with regard to the work you're doing with Suzanne, the sound that you hear from here is the sound of my hands clapping. Oh. I mean, I think I think this is fantastic, and you guys are really leading the way uh, in advocating for this and collecting the, the valuable information and detail and data on how this matters. Oh, thank you. Um, Standing so, on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> well, <laughs> honestly. The, um, I think what you're referring to is this work that I've done on a, what became known as a grammar marker, mm -hmm. yes. just like there's markers for various kinds of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one marker that we worked on, and it had several things that made it seem to be possibly useful. Uh, let me say at the outset, I don't believe it's the only possible marker. I believe there's other markers in both speech and language and in other elements of youngsters' communication conceivably, but it's hard to find them. Because one of the things that's good to have for a potential marker is something that almost every child that doesn't have a language impairment knows how to do this, but it's highly likely that the child who has a language impairment does not know how to do this. So the, the work was informed by theoretical linguistics and what we know about how the adult grammar works. And people back uh, just a little before 2000 were very interested in why it took English-speaking children so long to learn some parts of the adult grammar. And yet other children, Spanish-speaking and French-speaking children, le learned these uh, comparative parts pretty easily. So it was a question of interest to linguists wanting to know what is it about the languages that made it easier for kids in one than in the other. And when I uh, started studying this during a, a leave time that I had at uh, MIT and at Harvard, uh, I was struck by the fact that this was, first of all, a place where children these these forms were required in their grammar. So you could ask children to say things and notice if they omitted parts of it. 
So it set it up as, wow, they can do these things, but they can't, the children with language impairments cannot do those like the other children. So we identified some parts of the English grammar that we are able to characterize as being required in the adult grammar. And therefore we can measure our measurement of how good children are at learning this system is indexed to the standard for the adult grammar. And that's the only thing that we have right now that's really progress toward the adult grammar in the way of measurement. And it has to do with little, little forms that mark um, past tense and present tense and uh, mark subject verb agreement. And it's in the little parts of the grammar that families never teach to their children. Uh, most, almost all children just learn this by listening and picking it up without explicit instruction. So it has to do with the difference between yesterday I walked to the store or yesterday I run home when it should have been yesterday I ran home. Um, in English, we're required to say she likes cookies and she like cookies isn't good enough or she like apple isn't good enough. Um, because that little S is there just to flag that the subject is a single person. And those ways of measuring things then led to ways of comparing performance relative to the same children, uh, relative to typically developing children at the same age. And now we have very good uh, sets of normative data on it and we can make very good estimates of how far a child is from what's expected. And in fact, if I can put a little additional note in, we have on the Apple Store for free uh, a, an app that actually does this in ways that children like to play with the format. They don't have to say anything at all. And within 10 to 15 minutes, you get a pretty good idea of how this child is um, mastering this relative to other children of the same age. That was my next question was, have you told mm -hmm. about that app? What's that called? We will definitely link it to the resources. And also, can you tell us about your thinking with using computer uh, testing versus in-person? Sure. Um, the app is called Gramagio, G-R-A-M-M-A-G-G-I-O. And it is available at the Apple Store. So if you get into the Apple Store and look for it, you'll find it. You click on it, you can download it. And it runs on an iPod or on an iPhone. And either one of them, in, in 10 to 15 minutes, a youngster hears a voice saying sentences. And the job is to uh, say yes if the sentence is correctly formed and no if it isn't or because in Kansas, the little girls don't like to say no, they prefer to say not so good. So <laughs> either, either way it works. <laughs> and um, we, do have, we do have practice materials that we'll be putting up within the next few months, oh, I awesome. would imagine. Yes, yeah, so um, it, it's now available, it's in use around the world, and it's in, um, being used in a number of research studies as well, which we encourage very much. I have to say it was funded by the National Institute of Health. That's so great. they're very interested in developing these things. That's great. And then, a, what was the reason for computer testing then? What are some of the benefits that you see? You don't need a trained adult to do it, and you don't have to get 
an adult uh, trained to do it close to the child, and those are those are the big expenses in the kind of research that we do. Each of us have labs that require us to train people to do this so that it's likely that uh, the information will be collected in the same way. We don't want to confuse differences in children with differences in examiners. So that, that's very expensive. It's always been an issue in the schools because uh, time is an issue in the schools and sometimes it can take 20 or 30 minutes or much longer to get this information from a child and teachers don't have that time, speech pathologists don't have that time. So this, under these methods, it's possible to build it in a way that children will attend very carefully to each sentence they hear and just push a button and keep going. And if you present it in a way that holds their interest, then it takes a minimum of time. There's no calculation involved. You don't have to train people on how to score it because it provides a score and it also provides a statement of how a child's performance is relative to age expectations. So in a small investment of time and energy, you can get a lot, a lot of information out of it. Okay. So it's not, it's not the full diagnostic set of information that's needed. It's not intended to be that. It's intended to be the equivalent of the mammogram. Mm -hmm. It's a way to get a quick snapshot in uh, that happens to have good uh, statistical properties for helping us uh, try to go further. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know what I learned about screening and sensitivity, specificity, false positives, I learned in your doctoral seminar. And the, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really um, an awesome experience to get to see some of the early work you were doing. <laughs> and now to see it in app form is really amazing. And it really got me thinking too about uh, the grammatical marker and how that's such a, you know, it's so powerful, I think, because as you've taught me and I've read more about too, it's just this kind of impoverished stimulus. Like you don't need much exposure, uh -huh. which is uh -huh. different than the vocabulary, for instance, right? So uh -huh. vocabulary, exactly. if you give those measures, you can get a lot of false positives because maybe the child wasn't exposed to uh -huh. it, as opposed uh -huh. to grammatical markers takes very little exposure. Well, and that's, that's in fact very interesting. The other way too uh, to look at it is that young children uh, hear these forms all the time. They're, they're, very, they're very frequent in children's, what children hear. Mm -hmm. Adults must use these forms for every well-formed sentence. Mm -hmm. And particularly questions are very informative in this and children hear questions all the time. And the interesting thing is that typically developing kids just learn this. I mean, no one ever sits down and, and lays out the grammatical rules and they pick it up on their own. And these, these guys who have specific language impairment and other forms of language impairment really struggle with this particular uh, part of the grammar. So you've studied children with specific language impairment longitudinally, which um, mm -hmm. you taught me, and I, I've had great experience myself working longitudinally. So you can see how children really develop over time. And I think in doing so, you have such unique insights into their change over time and how SLI impacts a person across their lifespan. So I was uh, wondering what you could tell us about some of your key observations about SLI over time from early childhood to adulthood. And what have you seen as the way persons can support those with SLI to live their best lives? Listeners might be wondering, what does SLI look like across time? I'm happy to do that. Um, 
I also want to make it clear that we have our longitudinal study is based on children that we recruited into the study because we started at the beginning wanting to get children with SLI and compare them with typically developing kids. Uh, later on, we were very interested in finding families of equivalent uh, socioeconomic status uh, as a comparison group as well. And as we were working with the children, we realized that there was something happening in the families. So we began to recruit the siblings and the mothers and fathers. Until now, it's uh, family-based, and we, have, we certainly have children that were identified at the outset with SLI, and usually because they were known to somebody. Usually the speech pathologist had picked them up somehow. But when we're looking at the siblings, then we have most of our kids with SLI in our sample have never been identified by a practicing speech pathologist or anyone else in their communities. And that gives us um, a good idea of what's happening in the usual case where they're unidentified. Uh, our children attend school in this sample in the Midwest, and we have something like 125, 130 different attendance centers, so their schooling experiences are very different. However, the presentation of their language symptoms is very similar from one child of, of this kind to another one, regardless of what school setting they're in. And now we also know quite a bit about their mothers and fathers and other members of their family. Some families we have um, many cousins and extended family members. So from all of this, we have learned that Children with SLI are likely to start language acquisition later than expected for their age. So they just, they just don't get started as early as other kids. Um, it, within the same family, there will be kids who start on time and go great, and then there will be a child in that family who cannot. We have some families that literally have the ability to have the resources to buy anything they need or want. And one of the things they want most of all or is for this little boy to be like his brothers and everyone else in the family who always found language to be very easy. So we have those kinds of circumstances. And one of the, one of the hallmark characteristics is a late start. And late start means that if something isn't up and running pretty well, certainly by three years of age and even by two years of age, it's time for someone to begin to wonder if, if more information is needed to really start in on a, on a screening and a diagnostic process. The interesting thing is that we've documented a great length across many different ways of measuring speech and language. Once these, once these youngsters get going, they change at the same rate. So the speed at which they change is the same speed as their age peers, just offset by about two years. And when they begin to level off, they all begin to level off around 10 years of age, eight to 10 years of age, which is where pre-adolescence begins in our children in today's world. So. What happens is they get into middle elementary school and everybody's not as fast in learning language as they used to be. And these guys level off then too, 
which means that they're left at a level still hanging below those of other children. And we've documented this very thoroughly for both grammar and vocabulary. And so it leaves us with this, what on earth allows them to learn so quickly, but they don't, once they get going, but they don't learn fast enough to close that gap. And it's one of the things that we don't understand about language acquisition in children. And it also has to do with uh, what happens to these guys as they become young adults. And we know that they're more likely to go into employment when they finish high school. So here's the kids who have the most difficulty with language that are going into the job market. And the children who have the best language, paradoxically enough, go into um, educational situations beyond high school where they continue to get extensive help from the adults and their family and everybody else in society to help them get through college when the youngster with SLI often is graduating into an employment situation and has to figure it out. And we've come to know these families quite well. We know that the mothers and fathers, it's not unusual at all that one of them or maybe even both of them had a similar history as a child. And more than anything, they want their youngsters to have this gift of being able to talk well in sentences and to negotiate disputes and to be able to present themselves well in a job interview and all of that is dependent upon language that isn't very easy for them. And how, do you, how does that play out in what you've seen with parents who are you know, dealing through an IEP process or dealing with you know, advocating for their children in the schools? The interesting thing, and we learn this from the families. Mm -hmm. The families have told us yeah. that one of their worst experiences is having to go to school for an IEP meeting, uh, meeting with the teachers, because for one thing, it brings back in their memories all of the times that someone told them they just weren't trying hard enough. If they only applied themselves more, or if their mother or father were only more encouraging, they would do better. So they have a sense of shame. They have a sense of recall of frustration when they were a child and which they still have in how to manage things in the world. And then they're in a meeting where a whole team of people is looking at them and telling them what their youngsters' limitations are and what they hear is, that's what my teachers said about me when I was a child. And more than a few of these families uh, will have one or both parents who aren't very strong readers themselves. And then they will be told that what you have to do is read more to your child. And reading was never easy and isn't the kind of activity that is comfortable and encouraging and all of that. It's associated with this sense of shame, this sense of not being as good as they should have been, and this sense that it's their fault. So all of that, all of that gets in there and it's very, very hard for the people on the team to pick that up because these are folks who who are very conscious of trying to maintain their dignity. And one way they do it is that they just don't talk a lot mm -hmm. in those kinds of circumstances. 
Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, you bring, bring up all these different misconceptions about SLI. And I think that uh, your work um, has really tried to lay rest some of these misconceptions. And I wish that all of our listeners uh, could, you know, really think deeply about the misconceptions they might have. And uh, let's talk about a few of those misperceptions. So one you brought up was if they could just try harder. So what yes. has your work shown about, you know, and, and your work with families about this misperception that kids just need to try harder? Well, the trying harder is prejudicial. Mm -hmm. um, typically developing kids don't try at all. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, didn't get, they didn't get to their advantage because they applied themselves. They don't know how to explain the rules of the grammar <laughs> and all of these vocabulary items that they know either. So it's it's um, it's really prejudicial toward the low the low functioning the low achieving guys, mm -hmm. and they're not low achieving in everything. That's the interesting thing about yeah. them. They're they're very um, socially motivated. They want to be the popular kids. We've actually run um, a questionnaire on our um, sample here for quite some time in which we ask them things like, um, are you a good student? This is for children in uh, junior high, middle school, and high school. Are you a good student? And they say no. And then we ask them, uh, are you very popular with your peers? Do you have many friends? And the answer is likely to be no or not so much. And then we ask them about does your teacher think you're a really good student? Yeah. The answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then we ask them, do you like to go to school? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Wow. And almost all of the children that we have studied uh, graduate from high school. They stay in school. Yeah. They want to be with the other kids. They want to be part of the social um, hangout groups, and they want to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, that becomes an important part of their sense of personal dignity and their sense of personal affiliativeness. They're very affiliative. You know, they, they want to be part of a team. Um, when, they, when they do enter into the workforce, they're really keen to be a good worker and get along well with their uh, fellow employees. So the assumption that they just weren't trying hard enough, it isn't a motivational breakdown here. Um, it's, it's something more interesting than that. And the motivational breakdown doesn't take into account that within the same family, uh, you will have children who have very strong language and children who really struggle with this. The other thing is that they're not very good at winning arguments because they can't control quickly how to reframe their sentences to get another approach on the problem. Yes, yes. so that negotiation argument kind of just um, expressing your side of a story and your views on the world mm -hmm. is so yes. difficult. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And the other one, the other one that I often hear is these kids just aren't very smart. Yes. And, and that's mm. just not true. When we measure them with tasks that get at what they know without having to test their language. So there's a number of ways to trust 
test what's called um, nonverbal cognitive abilities. So it has to do with solving mazes, finding similarities from one picture to another one with when kids um, forming designs with blocks. There's a number of classic psychological methods for doing this. And under those methods, we know that we certainly have uh, a surprising number of individuals who have very high nonverbal IQs and still have these grammar problems and really struggle with their language. So that's, that's just not true to fact. That's just not uh, the way it works. And interestingly enough, it can go the other way. You can have individuals with very low nonverbal IQ who have fantastic language. Uh, who have, <laughs> some of these individuals have been studied in great detail because it's been absolutely fascinating uh, how these things can um, be distinct from each other. Yeah, that, that plays out also in dyslexia too. So the mm -hmm. related to the yes. word reading, right? It's been this yes. debate and we just don't yes. see that it's related to intelligence, but it is the forward facing, unfortunately, ability that, you know, the first formative experience that these children have is communicating with language, learning language, learning how to read words in a formal setting. And then that start, unfortunately, um, because it is the forward-facing ability, the measurable ability that their teachers see in their parents, it starts to form, like you said, their self-esteem and how they perceive themselves as students, how others perceive them as students. Uh, the other misperception uh, I hear a lot is that only children who live in poverty have a language impairment. That one I feel um, very strongly about, and it's not true either. Like I say, the... Uh, some of the most heartbreaking stories have been from families with um, unlimited means, and it does not it does not allow them to buy the resources to enhance their child's performance on this. It's just um, another way of adding to the shame and the um, frustrations that go with this. It is also true, as I was saying, that if there is someone in the family with a similar history of this, uh, then it is more likely that they will not have finished a college degree. So the extent to which an advanced degree is supporting uh, increased financial resources that becomes an issue for the families. That it is not the case that poverty causes this. Within the same poor family, there are children with high verbal skills and there are children of the sort that we're talking about now. And it makes it very clear that it's not poverty and even sometimes it said that the mother didn't talk to her child often enough. That's, that's not the explanation either. It's interesting that there's great variation around the world in which uh, people believe that it's, it's even a worthwhile thing to be doing to talk to your children because what do they know? Uh, and, you know and in Absolutely. our culture, it's considered charming and sensitive to ask your child a bunch of questions to which you know the answer. You know, what color is this? Mm -hmm. Well, you, and, and many cultures, 
many cultures think that's just the weirdest thing ever. Why would you ask a child a question that you know the answer to? Uh, so absolutely, absolutely. I work with the Navajo <laughs> reservation, you know, it's yeah, seen, not be heard. I, I had a, a Fulbright scholar from Finland. She happened to come last year during Halloween in my small town I right. live in. We shut down mm -hmm. the whole downtown for the children to trick or treat. And she was just blown away by this because she's like, we cherish our children, but we would never shut down a city to do this. This is this like really baffling. <laughs> and it is true. It's such a kind of a Eurocentric view, I think, it and is. maybe even more American, even, I don't know, to have this kind of focus. And mm -hmm. we know children in multiple cultures, they, they show these variations in language ability that is unrelated to what they're hearing from their parents and how much they're asked a specific question, for instance. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of, of the same sort of thing that thinks Chinese is a very complicated language, but English is a very easy language. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not agreed upon either. <laughs> not at all. No, that's so true. I think it's, it's interesting to me how, uh, and I'm hoping that SLI will follow in the wake of this. I do think there's become more and more um, you know, understanding that, for instance, autism isn't caused by poverty and autism, you know, or even dyslexia, I think exactly. there's a lot of movement towards that. Um, and I'm really, um, I think that movement, I'm hoping again, that we're writing in the wake of that too, based on the work you've done, that we can mm -hmm. uh, get the word out about these children mm -hmm. as well. And when I give talks, I always try to make some of those comparisons because it does seem like people understand those a bit more, even though they don't understand that the prevalence is lower and the prevalence is so much yes. higher for yes. SLI. So um, I think that the it, you've talked a bit about your family studies, and I just wanted you to talk mm -hmm. to a little bit about your twin studies and what you found with mm -hmm. genetics. And it seems like all mm -hmm. of this is concluding that this is a neurobiological difference that mm -hmm. a child is born with. But tell mm -hmm. us about your genetic studies and some of the findings. Well, there's two two branches of it. Uh, let me start with the twins because uh, the the logic of a twin study is interesting. When you have two children that were conceived at the same time and in the uterus at the same time and born on the same day, it's interesting that in humans they come in two different kinds of pairs. And one kind of a pair are known as identical twins or in the literature monozygotic, meaning that they started as one fertilized egg that split into two zygotes, two uh, very beginning forms of human beings. And so their DNA is thought, at first it was thought to be completely identical, but we now know that there's some little tiny variations in it that are of interest for people that, that study this in greater detail. But for us, we can think of them as identical. So they have the same DNA. So that means that the extent to which um, language is inherited by virtue of what's in the DNA, they should be very much like each other in their language. And their comparison is with pairs of children that are not identical twins, they're fraternal twins. Fraternal meaning uh, family-like, basically. They're no more like each other than other siblings. The DNA is different. Uh, there were two fertilized eggs uh, that were 
conceived at the same time and they were carried in the uterus at the same time. So uh, with fraternal twins, you can have a boy and a girl, for example. Uh, with identical twins, they are always of the same sex. And this means that the logic for doing comparisons within the twin pair is that the twins who are IMSIs should be more like each other in language than the twins who are DZs or fraternal twins uh, should be less like each other. They should be no more like each other than brothers and sisters in the same family. And because they're born at the same time, any kind of um, environmental influences like whether or not there's lead in the water supply or anything like that would be the same for those children growing up. So under those circumstances, we can run all kinds of wonderful statistical models now asking these questions. And we can ask about different dimensions of speech and language. And out of it comes a heritability or an estimate of the extent to which uh, these traits that we're measuring are inherited. And we're finding very clear evidence that there certainly is something that is inherited. And our studies are aligning with some earlier studies suggesting that uh, the evidence for inherited uh, contributions increases with age. Uh, it's uh, high for speech uh, until almost all children have figured out their speech system unless they're neurologically impaired, certainly by the time they're six or seven. So we don't hear much about heritability of speech beyond that because everybody has the same speech or you can't communicate at all. Uh, but the language piece uh, continues to be of interest and we know that grammar, this grammar marker we're measuring consistently yields some of the highest heritabilities of what we're measuring. But vocabulary is heritable as well, and other things that we're measuring in the details of the system. So to go back to precision medicine, uh, as far as we can um, follow that model, the more precise we get, the more we find evidence of heritability, and it's in there in different, different dimensions. We know the most about this one part of the grammar to look at. Now, uh, it turns out there's also a twinning effect such that twins are later in learning language. And we can see that because it's true for both MZs and DZs, but we can also see that it's more evident for identical twins than it is for fraternal twins. And there's huge implications for that in uh, artificial reproductive methods and some of the other ways in which our whole understanding of reproduction in humans has really changed greatly recently. But this is an interesting uh, line of work. It was made possible by colleagues, people who became my colleagues who contacted me a long time ago and said, would, would you come talk to us? We, we have the means to do a twin study, but we would we'll want to talk to you about whether or not you would lead such an effort. And it turned out that that was possible. And so our twin data collection was done in Australia awesome. because we could get the medical records there that are, that are not possible to do it that way in the US. And then that's, that's now running in parallel with the family-based pedigree studies that we're doing in the US. And that's at the level of 
molecular genetics, where we're actually looking at different uh, levels of gene expression. And our lab is one of maybe four or five around the world that are really involved in doing this work. Um, there's, it's tedious work. Uh, it has been frustrating because there have been some discoveries and some leads, but it is turning out to be a challenge to replicate across uh, different, different groups and to replicate uh, the same findings in ways that would make, make us all confident that we really have discovered a part of it. So most of us do believe that ultimately it's got to be something in the neurobiology that's under uh, gene control systems of various kinds, but uh, we don't have any of those pathways well identified yet. Although many people are looking. That's, that's fantastic. And it's such a big contribution to uh, know that we can say definitively that it is a neurobiological difference and it's not caused by parents. They don't need to feel guilty. Although I do know that it can make them feel guilty at times thinking they passed it on, but it, there is a variation that occurs. So it's not inherent that you're, you know, definitely passing it on. And obviously it's obvious it's, you know, it's not inherent that you have to have a parent that has uh, SLI to have a child with SLI. So um, those variations yeah. exist. Yeah. We may, we may, going back to the breast cancer mm -hmm. uh, comparison, we may in fact find something similar. Uh, oh. we, we now understand that there certainly are uh, cases of breast cancer that have a genetic origin, mm -hmm. but the large number of breast cancers are not of that type. Uh, so that's, they're, they're farther ahead than we are. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know this from your work on dyslexia as well, yes. that uh, the work on inheritance and dyslexia is ahead of the work on speech and language, language in particular. Um, and the, the families can find uh, comfort in knowing that there's an inherited component. But it also is a little unnerving to wonder uh, yes. where did this come from within the family. Yeah. And now's a good time to point out that you can have a genetic uh, causal pathway that's not inherited, that's not passed down through families. So you can you can have gene effects that aren't running in families. So these are these are all part of the complications of what we now know about this. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for telling us more about that work. And we have a lot of listeners in Australia, so they'll be interested to. Great. You've got some uh, some work there, too. So I'm mindful of our time. And I well, want to make me, sure. Oh, go ahead. Let me give a shout out to uh, Steve Zubrick and Kate Taylor, who mm -hmm. have been my colleagues and partners. And uh, we're still working on producing the papers. And so I'm still in regular touch with them. And um, they're they're part and parcel of what I'm talking about off that twin study. That's great. And I'm sure some of the listeners will recognize their name. And they're in Perth. Is that correct? Yes. Kate is now based in Tasmania. Oh. Uh, and uh, Steve, but they both have a connection in Perth. And Steve is uh, still in Perth at the Telethon uh, Institute there. Oh, great. Well, be mindful of our time, I want to make sure I ask you the two questions I always ask every guest. The yes, first one uh -huh. is, yes, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Well, there's a, uh, a couple things. Uh, one is something that I can't talk too much about, but I'm quite excited about it. So here it is. <laughs> Tell us a little uh, bit. <laughs> 
it, it is it is work that's um, in collaboration with uh, a company that does work on reading instruction mm -hmm. in the schools. So um, this whole whole electronic uh, presentation systems mm -hmm. uh, reading, which of course is related to language, and uh, we'll see we'll see how that proceeds. But I I'll am I am. <laughs> yeah, I am very interested in um, the world, the emerging world of electronically mediated systems of teaching children and identifying children who are not um, performing as well as we would expect them and want them to. So it's it goes back to the analog again on mammograms and how we might get better um, better options for quick and easy screening materials uh, in this way into the system. But it, it requires uh, a very different kind of information and data collection and all of that stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what is your favorite book from childhood or now? You know, um, I read this too. Uh, in, I recently saw the movie Black Beauty again, and uh, I had that child read. I had that book read to me when I was a child. I think I was in second grade when I had measles or chickenpox, something that was the scourge scourge of the year at that time, and I really uh, enjoyed that one immensely. But I'm a very avid reader. I always have um, been, so I read voraciously. I read. Um, mysteries and what suspense mm -hmm. uh, novels of various kinds. I'm an avid moviegoer too. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, me too. Very, me too. Very keen on the movies. Oh, that's great. I love when, you know, my favorite is maybe you feel this way too as a book reader and a moviegoer. I love when mm -hmm. I can read a book and go to the movie to see the movie. That was, oh, yeah. Isn't that the yeah. best? Yes, yes. Because yes. then you well, can see course, what they, how they envisioned it, right? Well, this weekend is the opening of the movie version of Cats. Yes. So I will I will be there uh, on Friday night to check it all out. That's exciting. <laughs> I will be uh, also attending a big premiere of Star Wars. Awesome. Oh, yes. Yes, I know. Well, that's second on my list. <laughs> that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, well you have a teenager. voice. So. Yes, having a voice and having a teenager. I, I think uh, I bought that in October or something. So. Yes, indeed. Indeed. But I hope to see cats as well. I would love that. Mm -hmm. Well, Mabel, thank you so much for spending your time mm -hmm. chatting with me today and sharing your findings with the listeners. I very much appreciate it. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. And Tiffany, I just have to tip my hat and along with everybody else for your willingness to take on podcasting <laughs> as your hobby. Well, it's a little crazy, but I have to say I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, if you're going to have a hobby, why not have one that, that maybe maybe entertains someone out there so <laughs> and brings information out. I just am glad that you can get it's such a it's such an honor to sh shine a light on uh, the people that have so generously uh, trained me like yourself and others. So um, thank you again. Thank you. Well, it's my great pleasure and have a good holiday. You too. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. 
You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.